baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm reporter Holly Kwan, along with reporter Matt Bigler. This week, we've seen a lot of earthquake-related stories. The 112th anniversary of the 1906 quake, the release of the U.S. Geological Survey's latest scenario of a 7.0 quake hitting the Hayward Fault, plus an extensive New York Times story looking at the proliferation of skyscrapers in downtown San Francisco and the reassessment of seismic regulations. We'll take a look at all of this, plus how to DIY retrofit your own home. San Francisco, open your golden gate. On Wednesday, April 18th, as is tradition, a crowd including San Francisco city leaders and first responders gathered at Lotus Fountain for the anniversary of the 1906 quake. In 112 years, we've learned a lot, but looking back always offers lessons for the future. MC and San Francisco native Bob Sarlett traces the first few hours after that quake, equivalent to a 7.9 that shook for 45 to 60 seconds. Low-rent tenements in the south of Market District collapse. Hundreds are killed and liquefied ground swallows their homes. More victims are added to the death toll as collapsed structures immediately catch fire and prevent rescue attempts. Tragically, the man we would need most to fight the rampant fires, Fire Chief Dennis T. Sullivan, is fatally wounded during the earthquake. He would die four days later when a spire tower of the California Hotel collapses onto his fire station home. Due to severe earthquake damage, telephone and telegraph communication within the city is impossible. A few messages are sent around the world via the Pacific Cable before that line, too, fails. 6 a.m. San Francisco Mayor Eugene Schmitz is unaware of the severity of the quake until anxious city officials arrive at his door. He leaves the safety of his home and heads downtown to see for himself the enormous scale of the disaster. 6.30 a.m. All available troops are ordered to report to the mayor at the Hall of Justice. Some 1,700 soldiers come to the aid of both residents and firefighters. 8.14 a.m., a major aftershock strikes and causes many of the damaged buildings still standing to collapse. Throughout the day, the city suffers 26 aftershocks, each one slowing the already overstretched rescue effort. Fires rage and spread throughout the city. They are not stopped until 74 hours later. Many of San Francisco's finest buildings collapse under the firestorms. Firefighters begin dynamiting buildings to create fire breaks. 1 p.m. in the afternoon, the temporary hospital <laughs> set up outside City Hall is abandoned due to the impending fire break. The sick and injured are forced to evacuate to temporary camps throughout the city and in parks on the edge of town. Fast forward to now when scientists at the U.S. Geological Survey say there's a one in three chance of a 7.0 quake on the Hayward Fault in the next 30 years. On that same anniversary day, they released Haywired, a simulation of such a disaster. With an epicenter at Oakland, the rupture races 52 miles along the fault towards Fremont and Richmond at speeds of 7,000 miles per hour. In Berkeley and Hayward, the ground shifts three to five feet, ripping through buried pipes and wires. 
The USGS shake map shows areas of violent and extreme shaking, lasting up to 30 seconds or longer, causing very heavy damage. Away from the epicenter, a warning arrives up to 25 seconds before strong shaking begins. Impacts and destruction are magnified by a cascade of hazards. In the haywired scenario, 800 people die and 18,000 more are injured. 2,500 people need to be rescued from collapsed buildings, while another 22,000 are trapped in elevators. In this scenario, 77,000 to 152,000 households could be displaced. Some East Bay residents lose water for six weeks and up to six months in the worst hit areas. Lack of firefighting water could turn some of the more than 400 fires into conflagrations, burning the equivalent of 52,000 single-family homes. Who has power, water, gas, and communications? Every lifeline is disrupted to some extent. This could be the first major U.S. earthquake in the age of the Internet. What happens in a disconnected world? Dozens of significant aftershocks and fault afterslip will cause additional costly damage, requiring repeated inspections and repairs. Property damage and direct business losses exceed $82 billion, mostly due to shaking, but also to liquefaction and landslides. Dr. Jack Boatwright is a USGS seismologist who points to the breadth of this latest study that went beyond what happens when the shaking stops. He says seismologists don't usually study what happens the days, weeks, and months afterwards. Joining me is KCBS reporter Matt Bigler. We don't talk about uh, normally about um, how many people are displaced, which is um, really the big economic driver um, off of these earthquakes. It ends up being a lot stronger than simply the damage um, that the earthquake uh, creates. It's the aftermath. It's the aftermath. And uh, to give you an example from San Francisco, San Francisco in 1906 strongly resembled in, in sort of displaced population New Orleans after Katrina. About half the population went away, went to different places. Um, it went to the East Bay. Uh, went to um, the North Bay, to uh, Sonoma and places like that. What they didn't have in New Orleans, uh, but they did have in San Francisco for up to a year and maybe a couple of years after the earthquake, they had people living in um, effectively 10 cities um, in the parks in San Francisco. All that displaced population means that the economy is completely reduced. And that is, that's a big worry about that, that goes to the resilience of cities. It sounds like what you're saying is that it's, it's not just a matter of how do you prepare against surviving some, a, a big 7.0 quake, but it's also in your mind preparing for what will come later. Like you said, so it's this diaspora of people. Um, the, the lack of internet access, the, the lack of an economy. It really comes down um, to can you stay in your home? I mean, and that's what uh, they've worked at educating people how to do that. Um, even if your home is um, 
uh, yellow tag. Hmm. You mentioned fires, and I think the report predicts some 400 fires could happen as a result of a major quake on the Hayward Fault. My question for you is, is there enough water available to put out all those fires, or do we need to look at our water supply infrastructure? Uh, that's, again, this goes to the breadth of um, the work there that was done in the Haywired. The ability to respond to fires is critically dependent upon, you know, do you have water there? I mean, because the, the pumpers bring uh, just a certain Metal. volume of water and, and that's it. Uh -huh. One thing that we've seen in prior earthquakes, and these would be the Loma Prieta in 89 and the Northridge earthquake in 94, is that we haven't had, you know, a full breakdown of the water system. There were breaks in, um, in Napa. I mean, there, there was water in the street um, in Napa, but we haven't seen a full breakdown of the water system. It, it's kind of a very uncertain area of sort of engineering concern. I think that my tendency is to build off of what we've seen rather than, than what models might tell us. So my feeling is that we will still have some amount of water, but that's a concern. The Bay Area has spent $50 billion since the 1989 Loma Prieta quake to harden its vulnerable spots, underground pipes and cables. With the Hayward Fault running right under Cal's Memorial Stadium, UC Berkeley is going to great lengths to get their house in order. KCBS reporter Jeffrey Schaub took a tour. One of the most historic buildings on campus is the century-old Hearst Mining Building. It's built of brick and granite, and a major earthquake along the Hayward Fault that runs beneath it wouldn't be good. So in 2002, it was seismically upgraded. Scott Shackleton is assistant dean of the UC Berkeley College of Engineering. He showed us how underneath the structure, engineers placed giant bearings. They kind of look like hockey pucks on steroids. There's 134 under the building. We have two spares. In a quake, it is the bearings that move, not the building. 28 inches. So you know what? If it happened right now, you want to be right here because this thing's going to go 28 inches in both directions. The massive Memorial Football Stadium was retrofitted as well. Jack Bailey is professor of structural engineering at Cal. So after Loma Prieta and then the Northridge earthquake in 94, Kobe in Japan in 95, the, the campus woke up and became serious about seismic risk. And really started its uh, safer program to upgrade its facilities. At UC Berkeley, Jeffrey Schaub, KCBS. While Cal may have stepped up, what baffles USGS seismologist Boatwright is how unresponsive some homeowners can be towards a natural disaster. Most of our homes in California are one and two story wood frame homes. If those homes are tied to their foundations and if they have if they have cripple walls, those cripple walls are braced. But mostly they don't have cripple walls. If they're tied to their foundation, they're extremely strong. They're very resilient to shaking. You don't have collapsed wood structures, even in very, very strong ground motion. And I would characterize very, very strong ground motion as uh, more than half the acceleration of gravity which is enough to knock somebody down if they're walking. So Holly and I are both homeowners, and we both live in the East Bay where the Hayward Fault is. I guess what I'd like to ask is, what should homeowners like us 
be doing to make sure that our homes are braced and bolted, tied to the foundation so that they might have a shot at surviving an earthquake? Well, first braced um, or bolted to the foundation is readily easy to check. If you can go down um, to your basement and look at your your foundation and your, uh, I'm not sure what that piece is called, the sill? Mud sill. Mud sill. Um, I just took a retrofit class. <laughs> so you're good. Um, you you can see if that's bolted. I mean, you can, can see the bolts. You can see the bolts right. in the mud sill. Um, the question on the cripple wall, the easy way to know if you have a cripple wall is if you have to walk up steps to get to your front door. If you don't have to walk up steps, you don't have a cripple wall. And if you do, you probably have a cripple wall. And they're, they're generally, um, what's, what's a set of steps? Three feet, two feet? Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, you want to um, brace those cripple walls so that your house doesn't get shoved over and, and not come back. Mm-hmm. In the uh, Napa earthquake, 2014, there were a number of failures, of cripple wall failures. You know, here are these gorgeous homes, clearly quite expensive. And it's it simply, in, in those cases, the homeowners kind of didn't get around to it. If they had spent a couple thousand dollars and done those bracing projects, then it, it might have survived. Then they would have been fine. Yeah. And we're very big in the seismological community, calling earthquakes wake-up calls. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not sure why we do that, but um, there was an earthquake. because it wakes us up at 4 in the morning. There was, yeah, there was an earthquake <laughs> in um, 2000 that knocked down a fair number of chimneys in Napa. I, being an innocent seismologist, thought, well, gee, if I lived in Napa, uh, that would spur me to um, think about retrofitting my house. Apparently, it didn't spur anybody. Not all earthquake wake-up calls happen when we're asleep. The Loma Prieta quake hit just after 5 p.m. quitting time, or at least what used to be. The emergency water, batteries, and canned food you've stashed away doesn't do you any good if you're a 45-minute BART ride away. San Francisco Fire Chief Joanne Hayes-White. You know, you want to have something in your car. You want to have something in your workplace so that you know, you know, pretty much no matter where you are, you you have a plan together. If in the event there's an emergency, you have to either get out quickly or you need to kind of, you're going to be stuck somewhere for a little while. San Francisco's population swells 20% during the work week to nearly a million, and they're not all downtown or south of market. With all the construction projects going on or in the pipeline, it's a lot for first responders to keep track of. We have 44 stations in the city, and the local stations, anytime there's new construction or something that's modified, it's on them to uh, orient themselves or reorient themselves to the building construction, the exiting plan, and we do regular drills with the with the building. The good news is, she says the newer construction uses better, more fire-safe materials. But what if a post-quake fire is fed by gas? Seismologist Dr. Jack Boatwright. So one of the big effects in Loma Prieta was that fire down in the marina. And um, where I live, up on slightly up uh, the side of Russian Hill, uh, we could look down and see that fire. Um, and that was really terrifying. That fire um, was fed by the gas in there. I don't know what the ignition um, element was, but it was a, a soft story building uh, which failed. Um, and the, I, you know, just watching the fire it was clear that um, it was being fed 
It, it wasn't simply burning the building. There was, there was extra fuel coming in. From your perch up on Russian Hill, you've <laughs> seen uh, the, lands, the, the, the skyline change. A lot of construction, a lot of big skyscrapers that have gone in. Um, do you feel like do you have great confidence in, in, in the integrity of those buildings? I presume that they're doing their job. Fortunately for us, not all earthquakes occur in the Bay Area, um, and not all earthquakes that affect urban environments occur in the Bay Area. So we can look at an earthquake like the, the really large earthquake that occurred in Japan, Tohoku, and see uh, how buildings responded there. We can look in Mexico City for that, uh, those recent um, events and see how, earth, how buildings responded there. The thing that, that people kind of don't appreciate, perhaps, about uh, the engineering is it's um, an evolving process. You know, what is the best way to build a strong building? You know, on one side, they have the ground motions that they're trying to build the building to withstand. On the other side, building cost um, is an enormous factor. So you're trying to balance the two things. After it was revealed that San Francisco's 645-foot-tall Millennium Tower was leaning, building codes and regulations were scrutinized. But this hasn't stopped the construction boom, with the most prominent being Salesforce Tower at over 1,000 feet. This week, the New York Times offered an extensive interactive story on all the skyscrapers going up and whether it was a gamble based on our seismic history. KCBS anchors Jeff Bell and Margie Schaefer talk with the Times San Francisco Bureau Chief Thomas Fuller about the story. Well, you know, there's a reassessment of the building code happening. I think it's partly because of what happened to Millennium Tower, you know, which is obviously uh, sinking about a foot and a half and leaning 14 inches towards other skyscrapers. The city has launched a study of the seismic safety of skyscrapers, and one of the things they're looking at is should uh, the code treat skyscrapers differently. As it's written now, the code has no strength differentiation between a five-story building and, say, a 50-story building. So there, there, there's an idea going around that, hey, you know, a skyscraper is something that is different from a low-rise building. It has a, sort of a shadow of risk that extends over a wider area. There's also a bill that's been introduced in Sacramento uh, that would uh, that would strengthen the code and make buildings usable after an earthquake, not just survive them. You know, I thought it was so sobering to see what you had to say about uh, state laws that were protecting schools and hospitals and some public buildings, but really didn't directly address the whole skyscraper issue. Well, some skyscrapers, like, for instance, Salesforce Tower, falls under a rule that says uh, because it holds more than 5,000 people, it has to be slightly stronger. So uh, there is a carve-out for that. But in general, the code says a building, including skyscrapers, uh, has to have a 90% chance of standing up uh, in an earthquake. And the question is, A, is that good enough? And B, should there be provisions in the code that say, okay, we want the building to stand up, but we also need buildings that are going to be functional after an earthquake? I mean, what, what, imagine San Francisco after a major earthquake where you have, you know, 10 
uh, significant buildings that are red tagged. I mean, the, the, the neighborhoods around them would be, you know, really heavily impacted. And where these buildings are being erected are also very important. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the density uh, that we're seeing in San Francisco right now is, is different from what we had in the past. And, and where they're being built um, is also I think, kind of unfortunate. I mean, we, we somehow the area where all these skyscrapers are going up is also the area where we have, the, you know, among the softest soils and, and soft soils kind of amplify the shaking of earthquakes, and they're just tricky to build in, as we saw with Millennium, Millennium Tower. Are you seeing significant uh, changes, at least, or proposed changes in the wake of what's happened with Millennium Tower? Well, there is this study. It was commissioned uh, by uh, Mayor Ed Lee in uh, September. Uh, it's going to come out uh, in October. And one of the things they've been tasked to do, uh, a research group that's uh, that's looking into it, is suggesting changes to the code. So uh, I think we can look for that. And they're also, for the first time, uh, creating a detailed catalog of the high-rises in San Francisco. We don't really have that. We don't have a, a database right now that tells us not only the height of the building, but how it was constructed. I would like things to be tracked better. I think that the New York Times article neglected to explain the actual process by which buildings are designed in San Francisco, and I think also in L.A., and this is going to sound uh, like it's very radical. It's not a code. Instead, it's a process where the developer, the architect, the engineers have their design, each individual design evaluated by a committee. And I think that the article didn't do a very good job of explaining that process, probably because it's, it's somewhat in the weeds. It's a little difficult to explain. But the, the point about the code is that the process of, of determining what the code should be and then having buildings built explicitly to this code turns out to be very cumbersome. It's difficult to figure out what are the, the critical pieces to put into the code. I mean, we have codes for uh, smaller buildings, but not for the, um, or we're not presently using them for the skyscrapers. This doesn't mean everything is doom and gloom. It simply means that we can always be more alert, more aware, better prepared, Dr. Jack Boatwright. I think it's mistaken to think that we're just sitting here waiting for the big one as though there were a series of bets that we laid out. We're learning all the time. For example, what we found out in the um, earthquake in Northridge was that we were doing welds wrong in the steel framing in such a way that they were more brittle than they thought than we thought they were. They didn't flex very well. What's interesting was there were a number of buildings in Northridge, and it turned out also in Loma Prieta, where welds had broken. But because those buildings were built with what's called redundant load paths, what that means is there's not one single element that holds the building up, there are a number of different elements. So um, some of these welds fail, but the building didn't fail. And then they went back, opened the inside of the building up, and fixed the welds. So going back to your question, is there an inventory? Do we know what all the buildings are doing? Um, I would certainly like to know how many of the older buildings have had their welds fixed. 
I know in uh, L.A. it's been a lot. I don't know how well we've kept up in San Francisco and the Bay Area. With KCBS reporter Matt Bigler, I'm Holly Kwan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.